This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are we have finished the book of Romans, and now we are moving into Luke. And if you've been here with us for any time, last year we went um, from Advent to Easter, the first half of Luke, and now we're going to go the second half of Luke from Advent to Easter again. So the halfway point of Luke is um, at the end of chapter 9 here, where Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. He's mostly been up in the north in the region of Galilee. He's doing a lot of miracles, healing a lot of people. It's been all great signs and wonders. As soon as we get to this passage, we um, see him turn his face towards Jerusalem. So in chapters 1 through 9, mostly the wonders and signs up in Galilee. And now from this point to the end, uh, he is heading towards Jerusalem. And the last four chapters are actually what happens in Jerusalem, but when it says in verse 53, he set his face, and some, some older translations say like flint, he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. He's like a great athlete getting ready for the tournament, like Roger Federer for Wimbledon. He's like completely locked in and he is set on his mission, which is to go to Jerusalem. This is why he came to earth to go to Jerusalem and essentially to, uh, to blow up the empire, which is his arch enemy, to conquer the empire by dying on a cross. That was his victory, and then rising from the grave. And so um, we're looking at this journey from Galilee down through Samaria to Jerusalem. It's a long journey. It's kind of circuitous. He goes all around. Um, but I want to look at two things throughout this journey. Number one, the empire and the pressures that the empire puts on us to push us away from God. And you see that growing as he's going down to Jerusalem, the pressures of the empire against him, against the disciples. But then also you see him begin to teach and push back against the empire and proclaim the presence of the kingdom of God through he and his disciples. So those two different things. First of all, the pressure, the mounting pressure. It says in verse 52, He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. So this was very customary. If a wandering teacher, rabbi, or miracle worker were going around a certain region, they would send disciples ahead. They would go into a village. They would find lodging. One of the great social obligations back then was hospitality. And so you would give up your house or a room in your house to someone who's coming through uh, the wandering rabbi, um, and, and take care of them. That was very much expected back then. But in this case, it says in verse 53, the people did not receive him. The Samaritans did not receive him. They rejected him. They pushed him away. And uh, it's a shocking thing. It's a, it's a massive sign of disrespect. 
And the reason they did it, it's kind of odd. It says the reason they did that is because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And you might ask, well, what was wrong with his face? Why would they reject him on the basis of his countenance of his face? And the reason was is because the Samaritans had always hated the Jews. Um, the Jews considered them half-breeds, half-Jewish, half-Assyrian. And so for 700 years, they had hated the Jewish people. And so when Jesus is coming through as a pilgrim to go down to Jerusalem, they often would attack pilgrims who came through Samaria. That's why a lot of Jewish pilgrims from Galilee did not go through Samaria. And so uh, the empire, uh, whether it was the Assyrian empire, the Babylonian Egyptian, they had always... They had always hated the Jewish people and put pressure on them to apostatize, to leave God, to worship their idols, or to be killed. And really, the American empire has the same effect, pressures us, um, not maybe as explicitly or as violently as the Samaritans did, but nevertheless, it's there. It's like the barometric pressure in the air. It's... Uh, you know, the pressure of the water molecules uh, pressing against your body and your, and your brain actually can affect you. There's sometimes um, that people who get headaches will feel that when it's about to rain because the subtle change in the air pressure because of the moisture will cause them to have a headache because of the pressure on their sinus cavities. So that's kind of like a prophet. A prophet is somebody who feels the pressure of the empire of the culture on them. It's kind of pushing them, the spiritual air pressure, away from God. There's a book called uh, America the Anxious, written by a British woman named Ruth Whitman. And she comes to America and sees in America this massive desire for, for happiness, which she then says contributes to America being the most anxious country in the world, according to the World Health Organization. A third of Americans will be... Uh, just stricken with anxiety, some kind of anxiety disorder at some point in their lives. And she said that the reason is, is because this pressure we have to be happy. We have to be happy. And we think that in this life we can find happiness. And this is one of those pressures of the empire. She said that within a week of coming to America, she had had more conversations about being happy than her whole life in England. It just doesn't come up a lot there. But here, there's a national rat race for happiness, as she says. And so even good things like happiness, can be part of the pressure of the empire to keep you from God, to keep you focused on this world. The one that Jesus targets in this passage is shocking. He targets the family. Of all things, it's surprising that Jesus would target the family as one of the hindrances to the kingdom and one of the delusions of the empire. In verse 59, Jesus tells this prospective disciple, follow me. And the man asked for a little more time to bury his father, which is very understandable. Let me tend to my father's illness first. And Jesus says, no, let the dead bury the dead. In other words, he's saying my kingdom is more important than your family, even your father in his illness. My kingdom is more important. Uh, verse 61, another prospective disciple says, let me, let me work on my family life. Let me help take care of him and say farewell to my family, and then I'll follow you. And Jesus says... Anyone, this is verse 62, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. So in other words, my kingdom has got to be more of an urgent need in your life than your family. And I can tell you in the church today, with family radio, family bookstores, focus on the family, that the, and the, the family is very important. 
No doubt about it. But evangelicals are sometimes kind of known as the people who are all about the family. And it is acceptable in the church to say that my family is my number one priority. And Jesus is just contradicting that. He's, he's, he's saying no. And the early Christians did the same thing. The early Christians would rather have their children be martyred than apostatized, than leave the faith. And we have to ask ourselves, you know, is your child's safety the most important thing in your life? Is that the number one priority when it comes down to it? So we see the pressure of the empire, and in particular the family here, and um, now we want to look at the way Jesus pushes back on that and the, and the pushback of the kingdom. So one of my favorite movies of all time, one of the greatest sci-fi movies of all time, 1999, was The Matrix uh, with Keanu Reeves. And he seems like this... Uh, nor, Mr. Anderson, he seems like a very normal guy with a desk job, enjoying his secular life, just going around as normal. But actually, you find out, you come to find out he is actually uh, in a semi-permanent coma. The whole human race is. And we, our minds, our brains are hooked up to these machines that generate a virtual world that we think we're living in. When actually our bodies are being harvested by robots who've taken over the world. That's the premise of The Matrix. And Kano Reeves is named Neo. He's like the new man, the new one. Neo means new. And he, the movie is about him getting unhooked from the machine, realizing that he was living in a matrix and actually beginning to fight against the empire, the, the, a rebellion against these robots that have taken over the planet. And in many ways, this is what I see Christ as someone who comes to our planet and exposes the matrix that we live in a world of illusion a world that separates us from God. And not only has he exposed the lies of the matrix, like the family, like the focus on the family, or race, or nationality, anytime you worship your family, or your tribe, or your people, or your race, or your nation, Jesus has something to say about that. He doesn't like that. And so Jesus is like Neo, who's come not only to expose the matrix, but to empower us to fight against it, and to speak against it. And the way we fight that is through prayer. Uh, he gives them the ability here uh, to call down fire on the empire. It's one, of the, it's one of the oddest things of this passage. In verse 54, the disciples say, when the Samaritans reject them, they say, do you want us to call down fire on them? And the interesting thing about that is not so much that Jesus doesn't let them do that. He does rebuke them. He turns and rebukes them in verse 55. The interesting thing about that is that he, he says it's okay to do that. It's understood by them that they could ask him if they could call down fire. Not even to ask them him if he would call down fire, but they're assuming they have the power to call down fire. He doesn't say, you don't have that power. He actually tells them in the next chapter, you do have that power. So Luke 10, 17, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And this is what I mean by empowering us to fight against the matrix or the empire, the world of illusions, the empire of illusions. Now this is the stuff that a lot of People who are more charismatic really emphasize, and that makes me nervous as a Presbyterian, but the charismatics are right about this, that we have been given authority over powers that are inimical to the reign of God. We are given authority over evil spirits like the disciples where they are empowered to have authority over demons, the demonic realm, the realm of evil, and we need to use that power to fight against the empire. I have this uh, friend, we have a running joke that 
I'm always like asking him, so how are you doing in your defense against the dark arts? Because we both love Harry Potter. And this guy's a new Christian. He's learning how to fight spiritual warfare against his doubt, his jealousy, his lust, his inferiority. And of course, it's a reference to Harry Potter. Um, in Hogwarts school, which is in Harry Potter, um, the kids know this, there, there is a defense against the dark arts teacher. And the, the defense against the dark arts teacher never really does very well. It doesn't go well for them. Uh, in Harry Potter 5, The Order of the Phoenix, the defense against the dark arts teacher is Dolores Umbridge, my least favorite character in Harry Potter. And she refuses to train the, the students against the dark arts because she doesn't really believe that Lord Voldemort, the dark lord, is back. So she is unwilling to train them in the defense against the dark arts of Voldemort, of evil. It's all ideas for her and no action. And a lot of times Christians, especially Presbyterians, are all about what's up in their head. And we forget about the power we have and the authority in Christ to speak against evil forces, to acknowledge the reality of the dark lord, and to fight, not with magic, not with incantation or like, you know, saying Latin words and using a wand, but with prayer. Where we pray, have you ever prayed, Lord, I call down fire on the worship of the family or the worship of one's race, racism, racial superiority, or nationalism, the, the bad kind of nationalism, where jingoism, where you think your nation is better than all the other nations, superior to them all, or tribalism. Have you ever called down fire in prayer, called down God's judgment on these things? If you ever hang out with charismatics, they do that beautifully. Lord, I call down your judgment on the porn industry. They'll pray things like that. It's really beautiful to see social justice merged with spiritual warfare and bringing them together. I call down your judgment, Lord, on the worship of happiness, on the cult of happiness, on careerism and materialism and consumerism. I call down your judgment on sexism, the objectification of women. Whatever it is, I feel like a lot of times these two groups get pushed apart, the social justice people and the spiritual warfare people, they need to be brought together. Now, you might have an objection to what I'm saying. You might say, well, didn't Jesus refuse to let them call down fire? And he did. He said, you can't call down fire. I don't want you to do that. But it's not because we're never supposed to call down fire. In fact, in Deuteronomy 4, God is a consuming fire who will annihilate his enemies quickly. God called himself a consuming fire. In Psalm 97, we read, fire comes out before him and consumes his enemies all around. The enemies being the empire and anyone who's unwilling to leave the empire. So it's not that we don't deserve judgment. The Samaritans were going to be judged for murdering these Jewish pilgrims one day if they didn't repent. So it's not that there is no fire, it's that it's not time for the fire yet. Because he hasn't gotten to Jerusalem yet. And, and he had to go and be judged first. He had to go and receive the fire himself, to himself be burned up by the consuming fire, to be judged by the, the Sanhedrin, the Roman authorities, Pilate, by the crowd, and by God himself. That's why Jesus came. That's why he set his face to Jerusalem. That's why he was willing to be homeless without a family for 33 years Verse 58, foxes have holes, 
birds have nests, but I have nowhere to lay my head. That's a nod to the incarnation. And he became incarnate, the Son of God, we believe, the second person of the triune God, became a human being to give us this meal, to take our judgment. And so on the night that he was betrayed,